Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Carmen Nazario and Josh Carter. All right. Well, it's Friday. It's five o'clock. No, it's not. It's one o'clock. Jesus. This is this is what happens when I'm on vacation mode. Uh, seriously, after this, I go on vacation for two months or two weeks. Jesus Christ. All right. So, uh, oh, welcome. Every- I really fucking need it. Oh my god. Welcome everybody. It's uh, my name's Josh. I am your host for the Veteran Founder Podcast. Um, it is Friday. It is one o'clock on the West Coast here in Oregon, and uh, and uh, Carmen's off this week. Uh, if you're new to the show, well, welcome. Uh, every week we bring in these amazing founders that are military veterans and or military spouses uh, that talk about their companies and what they're doing and and everything that they've built and and sort of what they've taken away from the military that is that bears relevance to their startup and this week uh, we have mike murphy who is the founder and ceo of proctor free welcome sir Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here, and uh, apologize for stumbling over everything. Um, I'm so, like I said, I'm very excited to be going on vacation. That, that's all right. It's it's 4 p.m. here, so I don't think it's five <laughs> o'clock anywhere. <laughs> it's five o'clock somewhere, and after I leave here, I'm gonna I'm really gonna go find a drink. Uh, but anyway, uh, my listeners really want to hear the story of Mike Murphy. You're a friend of the Patriot Boot Camp, and uh, you know okay. I I know that you and I both know Brandon Shelton from uh, Task Force Capital. Hello, Brandon. I know he's listening. Uh, so uh, so I want to hear more. And tell us the story of Mike Murphy. All right, where, where do you want me to start? All the way at the beginning, or uh, yeah. in, the, in the recent years? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's let's start with your uh, your your time in the military. Like you went in the army. Uh, what was the whole thought process of going into the military? Yeah, so I usually um, I, I usually don't reveal uh, this far back in my life, but um, I actually dropped out of high school when I was a, a junior, um, just before going into my senior year. And I'd always wanted to be affiliated with the military. I remember my my first real experience was a Marine recruiter um, showed up at my house when I was very young and met with my older sister at the time. And I just, he always just stuck in my head. He was just a really impressive guy. I was kind of just fascinated um, when he was sitting at our dining room table talking about the Marines and he was wearing his uh, dress uniform. So that had always stuck in the back of my mind um, as just someone I wanted to be like. Um, and then, you know, life goes on and I was in a position where I really wanted to get out of the area and look for some options to travel. So I made a, a decision to drop out of high school and join the New York Army National Guard. And after I took the ASBAD, um, they presented a whole list of jobs that were available to me. And being intelligence analyst and having a security clearance was something that was very intriguing to me. So that was that was kind of the start. And then um, shortly after getting out of uh, basic training and advanced individual training, we were uh, notified that we were going to deploy to Iraq. Um, so that was kind of my first uh, experience in the military was joining the, the National Guard and getting uh, activated and, and deploying. So it's kind of a not necessarily a traditional route, but I think for the, the time and what was going on in the Middle East, um, uh, some other folks probably had a similar experience. So what was that? Uh, you know, you, you, you're thinking that you're going to be somebody that's going to stay uh, here at home and you're deployed over overseas. What was that experience like for you? 
Yeah, it was it was a wild um, next six years. Um, I was actually I deployed three times: two as a soldier and once as a defense contractor. Um, it was it was really interesting. You know, it was a, it was a teenager, um, and you know, you go through so many changes. I think that a lot of people go through like a, a bit of an identity crisis when they leave high school or when they leave college or when you get your first job or you you turn thirty um and, and so on so I, I really didn't even know who i was as an individual at the time looking back um and you know basic training was exciting it was kind of what i thought it was going to be in a way you know you, you work hard you do a ton of push-ups very disciplined it was almost like being on the, the best sports team ever um and then it, completely different um you know there was still the, the physical uh you know the training aspect of it but um, it was a lot of classroom work and computer related, uh, work, which was interesting to me. I didn't have, uh, an email address. I really wasn't familiar with computers. Um, so that was just a, a different and interesting. Um, and then when we got, uh, mobilized and deployed, went through a, a, a pretty extended mobilization process at Fort Drum because we were, um, one of the first um, National Guard uh, Division headquarter elements that was deploying. So we actually had to pull from a lot of active duty units. So we were kind of a National Guard Division headquarters, and we were getting um, plussed up with active duty soldiers. So that was interesting as well. So when I when I got to Iraq, um, I was on a team, and I was responsible for kind of maintaining situational awareness of a, of a province um, and doing everything from, you know, threat assessments, pattern analysis, uh, briefing our commanding general from time to time, uh, producing intelligence summaries. So that was just, it was a whirlwind, um, long hours. Um, and then when I came back from that, I had every intention to, um, go right to college and, and get my degree in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. And I got a job offer to go down to, um, uh, DC and work for a company essentially doing the, the same thing that I had just done um, overseas and actually supporting the unit that replaced me. So um, I just, you know, took took the leap and, and went down there. And uh, that kind of started my experience uh, as a defense contractor doing Intel work. And then I got tired of commuting from um, D.C. to New York for my weekend drills. So I, I, I transferred to the Virginia uh, National Guard and sure enough, got uh, <laughs> stop lost and deployed with them. So um, kind of a, a non-traditional route um, in every sense of the word, but it was it was interesting. I just felt like whether I was you know wearing civilian clothes or wearing a uniform, I was focused on the Middle East data set, and that, that was fine with me. You list something on your LinkedIn profile that I'm really curious about, and it's called the Adjudication NCO. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Help explain those for the uh, less intelligent, uh, mainly me. Yeah. So um, if you ever want to read an interesting book, I think it's, it's, it's Imperial Imperial Life in the Emerald City um, was about the international zone or the green zone. And it was before I got there, um, but it helps paint a picture of, of what it was. The, the green zone or the international zone is essentially a loosely protected and walled off section of Baghdad in the center of the city. Um, you know, don't quote me on these numbers. I recognize I'm, I'm, I'm on an interview right now saying this, but <laughs> the, there was actually a very small number of U.S. service members and soldiers in the green zone. I mean, there was probably, you know, tens of thousands of individuals that were there every day and, and living there. I mean, there was apartment buildings, there was every embassy, every company that had a contract to do business in Iraq. Um, so it was a really interesting experience and our unit was kind of, um, tasked to help um, uh, run the green zone. So I, I had a natural fit um, 
screening the daily applications for people that wanted access to it because you had everything from um, private security companies that had their employees that needed to come on to the green zone to do business. You had people that came on to run the dining facilities to do laundry and clean. And there were, you know, thousands of people coming in and out of the green zone daily. So they would go through essentially a, like a driver's license application process, a biometric enrollment. Um, and then that data overnight would, um, bounce around, um, some databases and look for uh, potential matches um, to to things from their past. And then what I was involved in was screening those results and approving or denying access. And on the um, occasion, we would have to arrange for someone to not only be denied, but um, to get some further attention and possibly be detained. Wow. That seems sort of intense like how do you uh, how do you tell somebody that you know sorry um you can't can't be let in like what's that messaging like other than you know uh, the well, obvious yeah so i was a i was a small cog in a, in a kind of a very uh, big machine but it was it was an important job um as, as everyone's job was um so what we would typically do is um and it wasn't you know the first time it happened wasn't the first time it happened um everyone had a sponsor and that sponsor was usually kind of like a primary point of contact for, for a company and depending on what that company's business was whether it was a u.s or, or foreign company uh you would usually try to um work through the sponsor and if it was a case where someone would need um to be potentially detained we would talk to the military police units um that were responsible for the area and then also call a local detention facility um, to make sure that a they had space and b they understood what was going on and would be willing to take that person um, because you can't just you know deny them and put handcuffs on them Um, so there was some massaging uh, you know not necessarily misinformation but um, it, it wasn't uncommon and sometimes if you know a sponsor or an individual got 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 kind of you know, read the tea leaves that they weren't going to improve, they, they might not ever show up again. I mean, you have people that you know, would show up to apply and then disappear and never come back. I mean, you're talking really high volume of, of folks. So um, in cases like that, yeah, you just work through a process. You make sure, you know, you're working through the company sponsor, not revealing anything that's classified, and then, you know, dealing with the local security unit, military police, um, and then also make sure you have arrangements for a detention facility. And then you got into marketing. <laughs> yeah. yeah well so I, after that i um yeah so that was the second deployment and um uh i, I had a a job uh, that i that i was working in uh prior to that deployment in kind of the biometric space um there was actually some really interesting entrepreneurial um folks that started a biometric um intelligence program where they were um, processing um id material so um early on you know, there was a, a lot of um, evidence that was either being contaminated or, or not collected. So there was a very kind of big machine that, that got started where um, there was a lot of compiling of um, weapons cache materials and IED materials um, when it was safe and training of units that would be interacting with this stuff. So whether that was, you know, weapons intelligence teams, EOD teams, infantry units, line units, anyone that might be out and interacting with what could be a piece of physical evidence. Um so when I went back to uh, Virginia and I was already working in that program, uh, primarily producing uh, intelligence reports, but I was interested in going back over to kind of be the liaison and uh, biometrics case manager. Um, so there was one more tour um, 
being a part of kind of a, a what was really a rewarding um, experience to help try to make sense and digitize what was going on over there so that, you know, someone that might be participating in an insurgency or, or something that's just, a, you know, incredibly illegal and negative today, you know, 20 years from now, if they went to a port of entry in, in a friendly country or our country, we might be able to have that history that, you know, maybe you were, um, you know, doing what you said you were doing, or maybe it was something much more nefarious. But uh, yeah, after, after all of that, um, I, you know, through, uh, I got introduced to, some veterans that founded a, a, a school and it was based in North Carolina. And that's what, that's what brought me here. And, um, I didn't know what working for a, a for-profit school was. I didn't know what a startup was. Um, I'd just gotten along well with the founders of this business, uh, via, you know, email and, and phone call exchange. So, um, my ex-wife at the time was uh, redeploying to, um, uh, to overseas location and I uh, took a chance to move down to North Carolina. And that was kind of my, my first foray into marketing. I'm using air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to, uh, we're going to take a quick break. I want to hear more about this marketing. Is that cool, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Hit it. CPA dudes where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Instead, customers decide what to pay them. They don't charge you for sending invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings. They just get the damn job done. Find them at cpadudes.com slash startup radio. And we're back with uh, with Mike Murphy, who's the co-founder and chief operating officer for Procter Free. Uh, and we're going to get to that first. You were telling us about your foray into marketing from intelligence to marketing. How do those things, yeah. uh, how, do, how does that connection, how, how do you make that connection? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll have to credit uh, the, the founders of that business. Um, there was three individuals, uh, John Baggiano, Chris Baggiano, and uh, Grant McGregor. But um, John and I had a, had a lengthy dialogue, and um, he really saw something in me, and um, we kind of took a chance on each other, and I, I moved down to North Carolina to work for him. Um, and, you know, it was interesting. Um, at the time, I, I had no real idea you know, how like search engines worked or, you know, what the, what a customer journey was. And John really spent a lot of time mentoring me and even paying for me to take night courses um, and things like, you know, HTML1, HTML2, search engine optimization, search engine marketing, uh, you know, Adobe Photoshop. Um, and he really, he taught me a lot. And um, pretty quickly I, I saw not necessarily a, a, an immediate clear correlation between what I was doing as an intelligence analyst to a marketer, but it's, it's just details, paying attention. Um, and, in you know a lot of um, different tracking you know we would we would have uh, a course that someone would buy and by virtue of, of purchasing that course there was a process that took place and then they might be someone depending on their career path that would be interested in course b c or d later on so um that that sort of pattern analysis was interesting uh, to me right from the start you know that there was someone out there in the wild that needed something or was curious about something um, they would conduct a search and find us and then they would go through this whole journey and, you know, it doesn't end when they hit checkout, it, you know, it could, it could, that relationship could last for years or indefinitely. So I found that fascinating. And what Everblue was, was a very fast growing startup. Um, I had no idea that that was the case when I joined it, but it felt very mission focused. Um, you know, I had, I bought into what we were doing. Um, I felt like I had kind of a, a freedom to operate within kind of a very wide left and right limits. And it was just an exciting experience. Nice. So let's talk about Proctor Free. Um, yeah. What was the idea? What what problem were you trying to solve? Yeah. So at um, Everblue Training Institute, uh, we became an, an accredited school, which means you're you know you're .edu, and that's a very 
big deal for someone that delivers online education or for-profit education. Um, and in the accreditation process, you, you know, it wasn't a requirement, but they started asking questions about, how, well, how do you know, how do you interact with your students? How do you know who they are? And this was something that was intriguing to me because we would have students that we would never meet. Um, they would, you know, land on our website, go through our, you know, shopping cart, end up in our learning management system. And then, you know, eventually we might spit out a certificate that had our, our business name on it and we'd never see them again. And, you know, I, I had suspicions that, you know, maybe we were losing revenue because those individuals could share our intellectual property or course content that we spent a lot of time and, and effort creating. Um, and I had just come from a world where I knew all of this technology existed. You know, you could have a handheld device out in the middle of nowhere and, you know, conduct a biometric enrollment or a verification against a known record. So I just, you know, we didn't really have the bandwidth. It wasn't our focus um, to kind of put those pieces together. But Everblue uh, went through an acquisition process and me and another individual um, whose name is Velvet Nelson um, left at that time. And we, we started talking about you know what we wanted to do and what we wanted to tackle and work on. And we kept coming back to uh, the need for scalable identity management um, for online learning. And there was some, you know, there's in-person testing centers and proctoring centers, but there was nothing that would have worked for us at the time. Um, so we just kept coming back to it, coming back to it, coming back to it. And we were eventually pointed in the, in the direction of a uh, business incubator here in Charlotte, which is now called uh, Queen City FinTech. At the time, it was called uh, RevTech Labs. And, you know, we, we go through kind of those your standard incubator process. Um, you feel like you're starting to get a little bit more comfortable talking about the idea and the problem, but you really don't know how you're going to do it yet. And then we were encouraged to apply for a state grant uh, called the NCIDA grant. And um, we, we did apply, and we were one of the companies that won in the uh, spring cycle. And um, from there, we met a, a, our first seed investor, and kind of from there, everything took uh, took track or traction is uh, kind of what a, a traditional tech startup would go through. So what was that experience like for you guys going through the, the accelerator? Because I know some of our listeners, and I've gone through uh, an accelerator in the past, some of our listeners are, you know, want to be entrepreneurs. Uh, and yeah, I'm sure they're curious about what that that uh, experience was like. Yeah, so there's there's a lot more of them now. Um, we, you know, I've been at this for um, about six years, and they're they're not all created equal. Um, there's some that are very niche. Um, there's some that are for ed tech. There's some that are for financial tech or fintech. There's some that are for medical tech, med tech. So I would encourage um, folks that are considering either an accelerator or an incubator to look at um, what is the commitment. Do you have to move somewhere? Do one, does one of your principals need to be on site? Is it going to break your team up when you're at a vulnerable state? Are you all willing to, you know, just dive in and take advantage of it? I mean, we were pretty close to, um, you know, getting involved with an ed tech accelerator out in Palo Alto. And um, it wasn't right for our company at the time. But had we done that, it could have been a different path for us. So I want to encourage everyone to look at what the commitment is. Who's involved? Um, what are the mentors like? How involved are the mentors? What's the track record of companies coming out of there? Um, are they going to take um, equity in your business? Are they going to give you capital? Uh, because you could you could really uh, spend a lot of time evaluating incubators and accelerators and kind of doing that that flirtation. And it, it may not be right for you. You might be able to you know tap into resources in your local market that would kind of give you the same um, guidance and feedback. So I, I think they're great. It certainly helped us. 
Um, I'll, I'll be forever grateful to, to, to the folks that were involved in that experience. But yeah, that would be my advice is, um, what's it going to mean? Who's involved? Are you going to be giving up equity? And then, you know, at the end of it, what, what are you, what are you going to do? Are you, is there a pitch day? Um, are you going to be in front of investors? Are you raising capital? You know, things like that. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and, and part of it, we went through Techstars in Chicago, a couple, uh, 2016, I think now. Uh, but one of the things that I would sort of sort of piggyback on what you said was, um, you know, take advantage of the time when you're there, right? Like really oh, yeah. take advantage of every opportunity, uh, when you go through a program, like, you know, yeah, like, if you, if you're not going to participate in every single event and yep. opportunity in an accelerator and an incubator, it's probably not for you. And then I would ask, are you even really committed to what you're doing? No. That should be your primary. I mean, what's the point of, of participating if you're not going to just jump in? Because it's the one meeting, it's the one pitch, it's the one person that gives you feedback that hurts your feelings. It, yeah. it makes a difference. Yeah, totally agree. So back to Proctor Free. Who, when you were thinking about this problem, who was your customer? Who, who did you identify as your target customer? Yeah. So, um, we, you know, it's easy to have a conversation when you're not asking for something or selling anything. So what we did was we, we did a bit of a road show. We drove, um, as far North as DC, um, to places like Virginia tech, we, 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 we drove up and down the East coast and we went through our Rolodex. Um, I started talking to people from, uh, my former, um, industry, um, just kind of biometrics and forensics folks, just to kind of see what was out there, see what was open source, see what could be licensed. Um, and then to kind of get their feedback on the idea Then we talked to people in higher education, um, corporate and continuing education. And when we, we were having these meetings, you know, we wanted to ask and answer a couple questions. Um, one, do you, do you even think this is a problem? Identity management and, and, pro- and proctoring in the online environment. Do you think it's a problem? Yes or no. Two, would you ever pay for a solution? And if you would, what would that have to look like for you? Because, you know, I'm coming from a space where we could easily say, hey, we're going to tether a fingerprint reader uh, via USB port to your computer. Well, that's not realistic. I mean, you can't expect a bunch of students out in the middle of nowhere, out in the wild to have, you know, fingerprint readers or even want to do that. I mean, it might feel too, too much like a big brother product. So we would just ask those questions. Is this a problem? Would you pay for a solution? And what would that need to look like? And the more yeses you get, the more head nods you get, you just start to iterate. Um, and so, so that's kind of early on what we did. So prior to spending any real money or, you know, scoping out kind of architecture, or what a product would look like, we're just having a lot of conversations. Um, and then the the second important thing that I think we, we that we did, and I would highly recommend to anyone else is, start attending industry events. There is a conference for everything. There's a conference every week of the year in every city all over the world. Um, Our very first customer and a customer we still have today was met at a conference eating a bagel in the morning. And then the next month, um, I happened to be on site at their campus and we still had MVP and wireframe at the time. We didn't have a product yet. Um, and they, but they eventually materialize into a paying customer and they're still a customer today. So, um, go out and have conversations. It's easy. If you're not asking for someone to buy something, they'll talk to you. Uh, you might have to buy them lunch. That's fine. And then start attending industry events and just listen, network and talk to people. I love that. I was just talking to an entrepreneur last week about this. They asked me uh, to listen to their idea and I said, you got to go 
talk to people about it. I mean, it's just, oh, yeah. uh, that's, that's uh, day one. You got to go out day zero. You got to go out and talk to people. Yeah. And I think uh, when you, when you have those conversations and, and you know, folks feel ownership over the idea, yeah. even if it's something you were already thinking about anyways, or maybe you weren't, if they talk to you about it and then that turns into a product or a company, I mean, they like that. I mean, they should, they feel proud of it. One of the best pieces of advice I ever got while we were going through Techstars was from John Sheehan, who's um, former founder of RunScope, which is an API uh, developer platform. But when they were building out their platform, uh, they uh, they kept hearing from their customers, we need a way to test our APIs. And mm-hmm. uh, they didn't really think of that as a use case. But as they kept getting uh, customer feedback, they sort of moved into this API testing space. And before yep. they sold a cus- uh, uh, computer associates for several million dollars, um, that was 60% of their revenue. They ran, yep. you know, and, and it was just by listening to their customers. And so I think yep. that really drives home uh, a lot of your direction when you're building a company. So, so the next question I have, obviously, is how do you manage sort of this virtual solution of proctoring exams and mitigate any risk of there being cheating, right? I, I'm sure that's probably the biggest question you get asked. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Um, so first and foremost, um, if anyone ever says that they're going to be able to prevent all cheating, uh, that's just simply not true. Um, so early on, we made the decision um, to never you know, promise that we're going to we're going to det- we're going to you know prevent all cheating, and we're not going to accuse people of cheating. Um, proctoring is largely a a deterrent first. Um, and you want to be able to, um, capture and handle data from a global audience and filter it back in a way that your customers are able to sort it, review it and make the appropriate determinations. Because, um, you know, if we look at higher ed, um, you know, they might have, uh, different, um, academic conduct policies from institution to institution at one school. It might be, if you have a problem with this, you have 30 days, you can go talk to the Dean and you'll work it out. Um, other schools, it might be, Hey, it's an automatic zero. We, we put it in writing and you, you violated the terms. Whereas in um, the, the corporate uh, sector, we notice they're much more concerned about intellectual property um, and, and security of that, where, you know, in higher ed, it might be a passive approach where if it happens, we want to know about it, then we'll take action versus the corporate market where it's, hey, this is really, this was expensive to develop. And once it's copy and pasted and shared out there, we lose the value of that IP. So um, how do we manage it? So our, our product is delivered via a client application, I would say very similar to like Zoom or GoToMeeting. So if you've never interacted with us, there's an initial download of an executable file. In most cases, we're integrating um, directly with your learning management system or your test delivery engine. So you go to where you're familiar with to start your exam, and that's when you'll interact with our product. Um, and then from there, we're establishing a profile using the, the webcam and facial recognition. And then in you know, subsequent attempts in the future, we're authenticating against that profile um, to make sure that it's still you, um, and then processing different streams of data. So um, I hope that was a, a specific enough answer to your question. If it's not, I can I can go a little bit more into how our product works. But um, we, you know, I look at kind of two paths right now. You're either higher ed or you're not. Um, and then our product's a client application. Uh, we try to integrate um, always with the learning management systems and test delivery engines, um, receive streams of data in real time, process and analyze them in the cloud, and then produce a report back to our customer. 
That's awesome. We've been talking to Mike Murphy. He's the chief operating officer and co-founder of Proctor Free. Today's episode of the Veteran Startup Podcast is brought to you by Publicize, a deconstructed PR subscription service which generates effective visibility for your business. Publicize takes a strategic approach to PR, planning your publicity needs in concert with your long-term growth and business objectives. Check them out at publicize.co and tell them Carmen and Josh sent you. Uh, We're back with Mike Murphy who's the chief operating officer and co-founder of Proctor Free, um, which is exactly what it sounds. It sounds like, uh, you know, uh, software as a service for proctoring exams. So so kudos to you, Mike, for coming up with a title that basically explains your business. Hmm. It's interesting. People spend a lot of times on domain names and titles. And, um, you know, we went around and around and, and really wanted uh, part of our value prop and just what we do to be in the name of the business. But it's fascinating to me um, how much time you can spend in, in branding and branding and domain name searches and, and things of that nature. Do you on. know how many times I've had to explain to my grandparents when I worked at Twilio what the hell Twilio was? <laughs> yep, yep. But, or, or what you do. <laughs> or exactly, or what the fuck yeah. I do. That's right. Uh, so, so kudos to you again. Uh, so, so let's talk about your growth trajectory. Like how, when you first got your first customer and you started to figure out and unlock that uh, secret sauce of how you were able to get the second and third, how easy was it as you figured out that process and kind of walk me through that process of how you were able to define your value proposition to your customers and get more people on your platform? Yeah, um, it's challenging and you don't keep everyone that you engage with and you touch. So um, aside from, you know, so there's kind of a a go-to-market strategy that, that you'll want to, that I would recommend employing um, just because you have money or you have, you know, personal wealth, however you're going to do this bootstrap, um, don't, don't start spending your money right away. Um, have those conversations. And then, you know, when we were coming out of our incubator program um, and then we won the state state grant and we got our first investor, it was, it was pretty clear that we were going to need um, some technical uh, resources and advisement. So, you know, we hired our first CTO and you start to kind of scope out you know, truly what your architecture is, is, is going to be because enough people have told you this is worth going after. So you get, you've got to go after it. Um, and in conjunction with that, we're attending industry events. That's doing a couple things. It's creating a feedback loop, um, information, conversations, potential leads, potential future conversations and customers. And then I was uh, quietly working on our SEO um, efforts in the background. So I was getting content up on our site. I was um, hiring, hiring uh, freelance writers. Um, I wanted people to be able to find us. So by the time we actually went to market where we actually had a product, an MVP, a generation one of our product ready for a customer, um, I kind of had a foundation of a home built. And at that time, I also turned on uh, search engine marketing, which is where you're now paying um, to hunt for leads or you're paying to get in front of people. It's, it's less organic. Um, so then you just you start to go through a traditional sales process where um, if you get an inbound lead, you, you pick up the phone immediately. Um, you know, it's really uncomfortable to start. I, I would highly encourage any founder to never stop selling uh, and stay as close um, to sales for as long as you can and as close to all of the, the critical node or feedback loops as possible. Um, but, yeah, so you, you kind of work through, um, you know, the, the sales cycle and getting people in your pipeline. And then, you know, for higher ed, it's, it's kind of cyclical. There's, there's very busy times of year. There's specific times of year that they evaluate technology and pilot technology. We had to learn all of that. Um, and, you know, you don't keep all of your customers. There's bumps along the way. But once you get the first one, 
you can always ask for referrals. You can always ask. Um, you can look at what network they're in, what part of the country they're in. Um, if they have a specific regional accrediting body, that accrediting body could be the accrediting body for 400 other potential customers. So um, start looking for personas um, to either go out and hunt for conversations and or have that foundation built where if it comes in, you're, you're Johnny on the spot and you're, you're trying to get a, a phone call and a virtual meeting scheduled if you can't see them in person. How important was it for you guys to define what that persona looked like? Um, it, it was very important. Um, you know, and it's, it's like every quarter you, 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 you know, so much more and things change slightly. Like early on we had, you know, very specific titles we were going after. And then we started to learn that, you know, you can't necessarily force it from the top down, um, for, for higher education. You've got to have, you know, faculty members that are engaged, You've got to have a product that's easy and accessible enough for students because we really serve three audiences in higher ed. We serve the the end user. That's that student. It could be a traditional 20-year-old. It could be someone that's in their 50s. It could be someone that's mid-career and has a kid and it's midnight and they're just trying to take an exam. So we serve that end user. We serve um, kind of, you know, the, the faculty, the professors, the instructional designers, the folks that are kind of the front lines of engaging with those end users. And then we serve administrators. And all of them have different needs and desires um, and, and reasons that they're working with you. So you, you've got to recognize that, you know, you could be talking to the student. That doesn't mean that I get to work with your entire institution. I could be talking to the faculty member. That doesn't mean that they even know how it's going to be paid for. And I could be talking to the administrator that's trying to solve a problem for accreditation purposes and actually has budget and understands the mechanics of it. But they need to have faculty that are willing to raise their hands and they can't have a bunch of students that are going to go against this. So um, titles are important. Uh, but as you go along, you really have to start to understand that just because I'm talking to this person, what is the true sales cycle going to be? Is, is there a committee that's going to make a decision? And is price very important to that committee? Did they have a cheating scandal? Is that why they've reached out to us? Are they coming up for reaccreditation? Is that why they reached out to us? Um, because I, I think customers will come to you for different reasons. Um, so title is important, um, especially, you know, I would say outside of higher ed and more traditional corporate learning. Um, and then, yeah, from there, I mean, you know, there's all sorts of different titles now that I see over time, you know, there's like chief revenue officers versus you know, head of sales and things like that. But yeah, titles are important. You want to pay attention to that. You want to classify it as a field in your CRM and, and certainly pay attention. I don't, I don't think it's everything though, because it, you know, just because you're talking to the, to the right title, there, there could be a whole bunch of other things that you need to uncover in the background that could be very critical to, you know, when you're actually going to get that revenue and they're truly going to be using your product. I want to go back to something that we were talking about a couple of minutes ago about uh, cheating. And I read uh, a blog post that you guys put up, I guess, uh, October of 2016. It was one of the blog posts that you put up. And it talks about how there's this completion of this automated audit. And then there's a professional human auditing team that reviews the exam. And that you guys yeah. have had to review every minute of the recorded exam. That doesn't seem scalable to me. Like, how do you yep. scale something that is that involves a human and you hope to, you know, um, administer literally hundreds of thousands of exams? How do you scale something like that? Yeah, so early on there was um, – uh, so we, we still have we, – we call them human auditors. Um, and, and, you know, someone might 
also use the terminology as a proctor. Um, so when you look across the, the spectrum of proctoring options, you got everything from record only all the way to live proctoring, and that's a call center business model. So we'll always have humans involved in our business, but we'll draw a clear line um, at being a call center business model. Uh, we, we won't become that, and we're, we are not that. So we have the ability, if a client wants to pay for a human to review every minute of a session, we can do that for you. Um, there's still massive adoption that's taking place and it's going to continue to take place in our space, um, not just in North America, but in South Africa, in Europe, um, in the Middle East, um, in Australia. And some people still want to know that there's a human check and balance and a human involved where other folks in the same state might just want record only or completely automated. So we have that ability. If someone wants to pay for it, I will absolutely put a set of human eyes on this. So part of it early on was from a quality assurance standpoint to deal with false positives, false positives and false negatives. And the other part is if a client wants to pay for it, we can do that, but I'm not going to run a call center where it's real time. It can be near real time for you. This really seems like a great use case for AI. You know, how much of that do you guys see that as a part of your future as you grow this out? Oh, we absolutely see that as a part of our sure. future. Um, so we focus on, I think, early on and, and first and foremost, we fo- focus on simplicity and ease of use and consistent, scalable architecture that's bulletproof. Uh, because I, I want our product to work the same, you know, right now um, in North Carolina as it does right now for someone in Australia. So that is first and foremost uh, most important to us. And then as you start to look ahead, yes, we want to reduce um, the cost to operate the product. I want to make sure from a DevOps standpoint that I'm spending as little as possible to maintain this and, and run it and process things in the cloud. Um, and then I want to make sure that my, my overhead, my payroll is as, as reasonable as possible. Uh, but again, if, if someone does want to pay for that extra set of eyes, uh, we'll absolutely provide that because, you know, there's kind of a, a term that's become more popular known in our space, like multimodal delivery, hmm. where even within one customer, they might still want to know that I can have automated, I can have automated and review, or I could even have live proctoring. Well, we're not going to do live proctoring, um, but that's why um, we will probably still continue to have humans involved. But yeah, AI is a huge um, component of the future. Um, you know, not just even related to cheating. I think AI can have huge benefits for test anxiety. Um, I, I look forward to a time where, you know, someone is you know, really trying to own um, their professional development, their career path and their education path. And they have no interest in cheating. But, you know, through tools with AI, you're able to tell this person is stressed out. They just put in potentially the right answer and they're erasing it. and They're beating themselves up. How can we help them? How can we help them accomplish their goals? So, yeah, AI has huge uh, implications for the future of our space. That's great. I love it. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about fundraising. You guys obviously have taken some some money. Um, talk about the early stages of, of how you were able to secure your first check. You know, obviously, this was probably still a, an idea. Um, how yeah. were you able to, to um, sell the idea to somebody? Yeah, there's... Um Thankfully, there's a lot more information out there uh, now on how to do this, <laughs> just like incubators <laughs> and accelerators. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's there was really no playbook 
um, or, or set of rules when, when we started doing this. So we were a, a little bit at the mercy of, um, you know, genuine and honest investors. I'm, I'm really pleased to say that everyone that's on a cap table and has gotten involved in our company has been just a great actor, has great character, um, and has been interested in the overall success of the business, our client's success, and success of all the shareholders. Um, you know, I'm sure there's horror stories out there that some of the other folks can share, but everyone's been, been great to work with. Um, but early on, you're really looking, um, well, someone's looking at you if you're pre-revenue and you're even pre-MVP and they're evaluating you to say, what is it about this person that makes me think that if I give them a check that they're going to be able to do this? Um, you know, whether it's their, their track record and pedigree, or they're just, they're showing you something that they, they have kind of the intangibles and, um, they're going to, they're going to be tenacious and, and stay after it. Um, and then do they actually believe that there's, that there's a problem here you're trying to solve? Do they think that there's going to be customers at, at the end of the tunnel? So I think early on, you know, folks definitely need to look at who am I taking capital fund from? Are they an accredited investor? Are they an individual? Are they a seed? Are they an angel? Um, or if they're a group, if they're an angel group or a venture capital or, or you know, if private equity firm, if you get that far down the road, what does their portfolio look like? Um, what fund are they investing um, in you from? How much money is left in that fund? How often do they invest out of that fund? Um, has it been sitting dormant? Is there just a little bit left? Um, do they invest in, you know, companies in your space at all? Um, so you can do just as much diligence um, respectfully on the investor is, is, is they can do on you. And that's really important because it's just, it's just like dating um, and, and customer discovery. You know, you, if you could take a check from, from, for the same amount from two different entities um, and one of them, you know, has invested in your space, has a genuine interest in your space, has a partner that's near you, someone that you get along with. I mean, you certainly, you know, you, you don't want to just take money from any, um, anyone. Um, but yeah, early on, it's, it's challenging. You've, you've got to, you've got to make sure that you, you can you can show those things. You've got the intangibles, and you're worth investing in. And then from there, um, you know, investor relations. I mean, you could give a whole. You could talk for a whole another hour on that. Yeah. What do you think it was though for you guys that in those early stages that attracted the idea uh, in a way that an investor first understood it, understood that there was a big market here, and wanted to uh, help you guys grow this. What, what do you think that yeah. was? What, were you guys just yeah, good think, at telling I a story? Think, uh, yeah, so my co-founder and I, um, I think we were authentic. Um, we presented well. Uh, we had we had um, uh, cl- just come from this space and dealt with the problem firsthand. Um, and you know, it's no secret that online learning is growing at a rapid pace, right? If I if I told you that, does that sound true or false, right? Online learning is is proliferating right now. Internet access is is growing. You've got people going onto campus right now with multiple devices in their pocket, all competing for the same bandwidth. Um, traditional education is facing huge pressures. Schools have to do more with less. Um, and, you know, I've never met an institution, you know, regardless of whether or not they're concerned about cheating, and they are, um, and brand and image protection, no one's ever going to turn down the opportunity to grow and make money. And the easiest way for traditional schools to do that is to, to get involved in online learning or to grow their online learning portfolio. So early on, uh, we were authentic. We presented well. We had good chemistry. Um, and we were genuine. Um, so I think that that really comes across. Um, you know, if I pulled up, 
and said, you know, if I pulled up in a Mercedes and said, yeah, I've got this other gig on the side and, um, you know, I'm, I, I think there's something here and I'm really going to get after it. Just trust me. You know, you're probably not going to write me a check, but, you know, you, you meet someone, you look them in the eye, you talk about your experience, what you want to, what you're working on and what you're going to do and that you're open to coaching and you're open to feedback. Um, I think, I think that's why people took an interest in us nice. and, um, we went all in on this and, you know, people like to see that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I agree with that. We've been talking to Mike Murphy, co-founder and COO of Proctor Free. We're going to hit one last uh, commercial break. Cool, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Support for today's episode comes from our friends at Ruby Receptionists. At Ruby, they've mastered the art of turning rings into relationships. Their team of remote receptionists answer all of your calls live as if they're right there in your office. Together, you and Ruby transform your phone into the sales engine it was meant to be. Start setting your business apart today. Visit callruby.com forward slash startup radio to sign up or better yet, call them at 833-861-8100 and use promo code startupruby. Man, whoever reads those ads are just on point, right, Alon? I mean, he's just such a consummate professional, just a professional. We're back with we're back with Mike Murphy, uh, COO and co-founder of Proctor Free. We have about 15 minutes left. I want to talk about lessons learned, right? Like we've been spending a lot of time talking about these things that you've this process that you've gone through. But the first question I has have is, how do you think the military set you up for being a startup founder? Yeah, um, I think that it, it it's difficult sometimes to, to translate um, what your experience in the military was to the civilian world. The military is um, the leader in, in acronym creation, um, <laughs> and it's just like incredibly confusing uh, when you get to the civilian world. Um, so there's definitely um, things that that transfer over. So you you know you need to have the confidence and that you've done complicated things. You've been responsible for uh, a lot of equipment and even human life. And how does that relate to the corporate world? Are you a project manager? No, I don't have that certification. Have I managed important projects? You better believe it. I've done it when I'm tired with limited resources. Um, And then I think that another thing that the military prepares you to do is just be uncomfortable um, and get used to it. So one of the... You know, I, I don't think a week or a month has gone by when we've been working on Proctor Free where I just haven't been uncomfortable in some way. And that's OK. You're going to make mistakes. Every opportunity, every conversation is a learning opportunity. Um, so I think the military really s- sets you up with the intestinal fortitude to deal with a baseline stress, to be uncomfortable with unpredictable environments um, and to recognize that you, you while you know, the words and the terminology is different. You've been here before in, in, in certain ways and, and you can do this. Um, and if you don't, that's okay too. This isn't, for, it's not for everyone, but by, by nature of getting involved in a startup or trying to be a technology entrepreneur, you're, you're getting involved in something that's, you know, has a likelihood to fail. Um, and, and that's okay if the answer is no and it's not for you. But I, I certainly think that, you know, the military sets you up to, to be able to deal with kind of the, the unknowns and, and the stressful uh, situations. Yeah, definitely. So one of the things I ask every week is this sort of like this reflection question about what have you fucked up and what are you, and how are you mitigating the concern that you're going to do that again? Yeah. Um, 
That's a good question. <laughs> it's why yeah, I ask so it. It's not, it's not the last book that I read. Okay. Um, yeah, you, you, you name it. So I, 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 I kind of half joke that we probably made most mistakes, um, but we were still alive, which is, sure. is a testament to kind of the OODA loop and, and how fast we learn. Um, so I certainly early on, um, we've said yes to everything. Um, and, and that's a, that is a disaster. Uh, I mean, yes to racing to the bottom on pricing. Oh, you're, you're willing to buy from me. I'll sell it to you for whatever you're going to pay me for. And then you start to look back on that a year or two later and you're like, holy cow, I'm losing money every single transaction right. here because I just wanted to win that business. So, um, that is, that, that's readily apparent because I did not have a traditional sales background going to this, but I, I, I do sell now and I can sell our product and I'm much more confident in that. And that comes over time. So one of the biggest regrets I have is, is getting away from the sales process. Um, I think the closer you stay to it, as long as possible, it, one, it's, it's, it gives you authenticity. Um, so you're not asking people to do things that you're not willing to do yourself. Um, two, it gives you, um, you know, closer to that feedback loop of information. So if someone's going with you for a reason, Reason, or they're not going with you for a reason, you know that, um, and you're not just, you know, throwing spaghetti at the wall for your product, you know, feature roadmap. And then two, in that kind of same vein, is not racing to the bottom on price. People are talking to you for a reason. You're providing value. Um, and, you know, the way that I kind of, you know, showed, I think the second part of your question was, how am I not going to do that again, is um, you continue to kind of prove that out. Um, I'm, not, I'm not just charging for a proctoring uh, transaction. There's hosting that's involved in this. There might be setup fees that need to be involved in this. There might need to be a multi-year agreement to get uh, closer to the price point you want. So over time you iterate and you just kind of prove yourself out. Um, yeah. So that, that's, that's probably uh, uh, one of the larger mistakes that I made early on that we've, we've learned from. You either have a test or you don't. Um, if you have a test and it needs to be packaged and put online, that's instructional design or, you know, psychometricians that build an assessment for you. And then from there, where does it live? Is it in a learning management system or test delivery engine? Then you get to the middle vertical where we play, and that's your identity management, proctoring, the um, component, uh, intellectual property security. And then the next two are involved in post-test analytics and the credentialing, the badging, the degrees, the accreditables of the world. So for the future, I, I always want to stay focused on our core competency, but um, there's very valuable channel partnerships that can be established um, where we, you know, in the past, we've been, we've wanted to get business. So we've dabbled in the test delivery or the instructional design. Um, so I, I think the future involves us being more involved in those five verticals that I discussed, either through um, having long-term partnerships with channel providers or kind of being part of a, a larger network of channel providers. So that if you come to us and you have a paper-based exam, I can help you digitize it. I can help you secure it and deliver it. I can help it be proctored. I can give you analytics and then I can help you produce a certificate. And now you're paying for five things um, on top of, you know, startup fees and, and hosting. So I think there's a lot of long-term value there. Yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, so you are sitting in front of a new entrepreneur. It's getting ready. She, he or she getting ready to go through this process. What is the single most important advice you would give that person? Um, I, I'd say just, this will change over time, but what do you want to get out of this? Um, you know, is it, is it cash flow? Is it, is it momentum? Can you commit to five plus years? And it's okay if the answer is no, because this is not for everyone. It's going to be difficult. You're going to have conflict. You're going to lose relationships. There's going to be tension. There's going to be stress. Um, there's going to be financial hardships. And if you're okay with that, then then go for it. Um, but I'd really ask them, you know, what's important to you now? And do, do you think you know what's important to you in three or five years? Probably not. 
um, you know, my priorities uh, personally and for my family situation have changed over time. Um, and I, I always revisit them to make sure that I kind of know where my true north is. But I, I would challenge them to say that if you just want a bunch of money, um, then, then probably don't do this because uh, it's going to take longer than you think. Yeah. Um, and what are you going to do with that money when you get it anyways? So I would just say, you know, what do you want to get out of this and can you commit to five plus years? Um, and then what are you what are you not good at? Um, you know, because there's times when you have to be the most dominant. Um, person in a conversation or in the room and then you have to check your ego out the door and, and do, do, do defer to someone that might be more expertise and you know cto or, or from a sales standpoint yeah that's that's great advice um you touched on something and i, I kind of want to peel back a, a little bit about this and we've got about i don't know five minutes left but i want to mm-hmm. talk about the mental health piece of it I, I mean you you said this is a really hard thing to do and and i agree with you i actually think that building a startup is the hardest thing you can do in life yep. Right. And and part of that is uh, being a leader of your organization. You tend to feel like you're on this lonely island. Um, How how have you been able to sort of deal with the mental stress of going through this process of building and growing a startup? Yeah. um, For me personally, um, exercise on a regular basis. Um, Try to eat healthy 90 percent of the time. Um, Read. Um, there's a lot of uh, free information out there in books of folks that have gone through it and gone through it on a much larger scale than you have. Um, and that really helps put things in perspective. Um, and then just rely on people you respect and trust. I mean, you mentioned Brandon Shelton at the beginning of this episode. Um, I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. Um, Brandon has said things to me that few other people would say, and he's doing it, um, in complete honesty and wanting me to grow professionally and our company to be successful. Um, so it's not easy, but for me personally, I just, I try to exercise on a regular basis, just maintain a a healthy lifestyle so that, you know, when you're hit with that stress, you're, you're kind of positioned to deal with a little bit better than some others. And then, um, just read, read, read. Um, and then just, you know, talk to people. Um, you know, there's times when the conversation can go off the record and, you know, people will, will really, uh, kind of open themselves up and give you great feedback if, if you're willing to be vulnerable. That's great advice. I love that. And I think, you know, one of the things that I did uh, in my startup journey in, in here in Oregon is that we didn't have something for founders to get together. And, and I, I, I've talked to a bunch of different founders who are throughout the country and have similar experiences where they want to bounce ideas or just have an outlet for that stress with other people that have gone through something similar that they're going through. And so what we created in Portland was, because uh, we love coffee, is coffee with co-founders. <laughs> and yeah. so uh, it, I can sort of jokingly say it's AA for founders, but it really has become that. It's sort of this thing that you sit down, you have a cup of coffee, you talk with other founders, and I definitely encourage other founders to, to do that. If it doesn't exist in your market, just like go to meetup.com, create coffee with co-founders, and just like rotate it around monthly to different coffee shops. Because as Absolutely. you said, it's one of those things that is super valuable to get that unfettered feedback from not, somebody not, that's not even that i mean yeah. you'll you'll realize that they're probably de- dealing with the same problems at the same time or, 100%. hey i'm thinking about using this crm have you ever used it no try Airtable. it's much right. cheaper than, than a b or c so it's great they'll recommend tools and, and other solutions to problems that you may not be aware of yeah and we can't all have a brandon shelton in our life <laughs> although i recommend... we, can only, we can only wish <laughs> <laughs> although i recommend they do he's a great guy uh mike uh, where can people find you online um, yeah, so uh, my, my LinkedIn is uh, generic Murphy because there's so many Mike Murphys out there. Um, <laughs> or you can just email me at mike at proctorfree.com and uh, always happy to, to talk to anyone. 
Mike, I really appreciate your time. We've been talking to Mike Murphy, co-founder and COO of Proctor Free. I want to thank you for coming on the show today. Uh, And, hey, have a great Thanksgiving. Thank you. You too, and enjoy your vacation. Yeah, definitely. You've been listening to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network, the network that brings inspiration and education to startups and entrepreneurs around the globe. Tune in again next week and every Friday at 1 p.m., not 5 p.m. Pacific time. Listen, learn, and get shit done. We're out uh, next week, so everybody have a great Thanksgiving. We'll be back in two weeks. Have a great weekend. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.